Please uh, take your Bibles, open them up to the book of Hebrews. It has uh, it's really been great to be back. I came back towards the end of April to uh, both attend the Pepperdine Lectures and to do some writing, and I have learned a lot about Los Angeles proper, Los Angeles history, when it was settled, uh, the first missionaries, uh, the, the, the first natives in the Los Angeles basin. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but there are 440 square miles as Los Angeles. About 10 times that is Los Angeles County. And about 100 times that is the greater metropolitan Los Angeles area with a number of different counties. And why that area is all connected for the various uh, geographical reasons and historical reasons. I've learned a lot about uh, the the religious history of Los Angeles. And this all fits in very much with the lesson here today. Uh, it's a bit different than Chicago. You know, we're going to be looking at the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was written with two contexts in mind. What was going on in Palestine and what was going on in Italy, specifically Rome and Jerusalem. And they were both in their fourth decade, uh, in the fourth decade of the history of the church, in the 60s at the time that the letter came out, and they were both in really intense ordeals. But as I was preparing my material, I go, wait a minute. Jerusalem has a, Chicago has a lot in common with Jerusalem. And Los Angeles has a lot in common with Rome. And, and so being from Chicago, I'll share some of those things. Chicago in the Midwest, we're kind of no-nonsense people. I mean, uh, some of the religions that became real famous in the Los Angeles area, we chased them out of the Midwest. Seriously, we chased them out. Uh, the, the second largest area where uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints host, are hosted is right here in Los Angeles. In Illinois, their founder was killed, Joseph Smith. I mean, it's just a different world. I'm not saying that was the right thing to do. I'm just telling you. <laughs> I'm just telling you the difference here. Here you have the Scientologist complex and compounds and grounds and palaces and all that kind of stuff. I was actually invited to the Scientologist headquarters up on uh, Lincoln in Chicago about 15 years ago. And it is basically a storefront dive. The, the, way, the founder of the Worldwide Church of God, whose headquarters is in Pasadena, he's now deceased, but it was a pretty fast-growing religion for a while. It started with the vision that Herbert Armstrong's wife had in 1917, the, the week after they got married, and that whole vision spanned decades. He became a political figure. He was well-known. He was being in front of magazines. Headquarters had been in Pasadena. He would not have been accepted in Chicago. There were ministers in Chicago, part of our tradition, who spent, whose job was is to chase out the fringes. And the fringes ended up in Los Angeles. <laughs> it's the truth. That's not an insult. It's the truth. There was, you could not be very fringe in Jerusalem in the first century. Not within a Jewish context. Not, you would have been, there was one community that was out by the Dead Sea area where the scrolls were eventually found in 1947. That was an odd community, but it was far away from Jerusalem. They had a really tiny storefront themselves in Jerusalem on the south side where the poor people lived. But Jerusalem, you had to be kind of orthodox to really... Or, 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 and strongly represent the core beliefs of Moses to ha have any respect whatsoever. Rome 
was unique in this way, similar to Los Angeles. But the reasons that Rome had every kind of religion in the world there is the Romans did not like religions unless they were subservient to the, the emperor. So every religion, in order to be viable anywhere in the Roman Empire, would try to have a headquarters in Rome. And one early historian said, every sordid evil is based in Rome. It was for, for a very purpose reason that people would do that. There are a lot of scholars that believe that the reason that Paul was so adamant about reaching the emperor, because Jesus said to him in a vision, go to Rome. He's like, no, I want to go to the emperor. He was hoping that he would be the one that would convert Caesar and eventually have the headquarters of the Christian religion there in Rome. So in the early part of the church, at the beginning, Jerusalem was the capital. By the end of the first century, Rome was the dominant place of Christianity. This is important for us today in the congregation. In the 60s, both the, churches, the, the Christians in Palestine, near Jerusalem, Judea and all there, and the Christians in Rome were unwanted. They didn't have a headquarters. Guess what they didn't also have? They didn't have a designated minister. They didn't have a lead guy. They didn't have a celebrity preacher. Commentaries will tell you that people were, by the middle of the 60s AD, people were meeting remotely in houses, very disorganized. And so the author of the book of Hebrews happens to be in Italy when he's writing, but he seems to be connected to both ends of the empire. And these are at the, really the bandwidth geographically around the Mediterranean. So, why are we looking at Hebrews today? A lot of us live in the world where who the leader is, what our message is, what our brand is, and what our identity is, is part of our regular conversation. It might be where we work, what we read the conversations we have. Um, I have a bunch of magazines that come in every month that talks about brand identity, you know, and, and knowing your market, what distinguishes you, and so on and so forth. And I found, looking into the book of Hebrews, that we have some really uh, powerful ways to answer some of these questions. In the absence of a top dude... The absence of a Francis Chan. Okay. The absence of a well-known personality who everybody hangs their words on. What people hung their words on, you'll have to read with me here in Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, verse 1, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Look at verse 5. It says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I become your father? Or, I will be his father, he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he says, 
He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And it goes on to clarify the deity of Jesus. Point number one, our leader, our founder, is Jesus. <laughs> That's, it's, frankly, I'll just go through the names of who it's not. It's not Tom Brown who led the initial work here in Los Angeles in 1989. It's not his successor, Marty Fuquay. It's not Kit McKean. Okay? And it's not Bruce Williams. And it's not the next person who's going to lead, be the point evangelist for this ministry. Okay? So let's make sure we put our eyes on Jesus here, okay? Now I want to help you out because there's some fantastic words that are, we're going to read here in Hebrews. But I want to give you a little background. I was getting my master's in theology at Wheaton College between 94 and 97, and I had a professor that uh, was fascinated by the book of Hebrews and the Jerusalem church in particular. And so he identified three Greek words, or a Greek word in Hebrews is mentioned three times, wrote papers on it. They're out there on the Internet. And this particular Greek word I would like to take you to, first of all, go with me to chapter 2, verse 10. It says in verse 10, it says, And bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom through everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. That's my version of the NIV, pioneer, okay? The Greek word there is archegos. Now, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Okay? And um, I can't... I think the, the Greek word is in that passage, too. There's some translation issues. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says uh, that we should fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now, the, um, I have here in my notes, this in chapter 3, verse 1, a funny thing about translations, especially with the NIV, is that you'll have the same word translated different times in different ways based on for the smoothness of how something sounds. The Greek word, archegos, means this. Originator, author, pathbreaker, victor, leader, hero, trailblazer, pioneer, pioneer prince, founding king, and a longer description is one who opens the future up to new possibilities. And so it's a rare word in the ancient world. And it was, it was not used by a lot of people about a lot of people. So when the word is used with Jesus here, it's meant to conjure up that he's it. He's the all. I think this is really important for Christians is that we're not so hung up on the celebrity role of a minister. Okay? We, are, we have about five potential people that we're looking at for the role, and we are in processes with these men. Conversations. I was in conversations with one, two, three, 
three this week and one of them three times. We have to protect some confidentiality because some of the, most of these people have ministry jobs and we don't want to get them in trouble, you know. But, uh, but we, we're, we really want to make sure that we do the right thing matching that person. But one of the concerns I have is we put too much hope in man. First Samuel chapter 8 is a, is, a, is a cautionary tale. God has set up Israel to be led by him, okay, and then through judges and prophets and priests. And the way that the judges were to function was to be problem solvers. And if there was a time to actually cause a change or move, transport, you know, two million people somewhere, it would come through prophet, God speaking to these people, but there wasn't this, oh, ooh, ah. There's a little bit of that with Moses, but Moses was supposed to be unique in the Old Testament. He got people through, you know, out of Egypt. But the, after that, it was supposed to be judges. Had a female judge in there too, right? What was her name? Deborah, right? So that was, that was God's intention to have this kind of like no celebrity component. But everybody wanted to have a king, like the pagan nations. And so this is tragic because eventually the Lord has to say to Samuel, he goes, stop being so offended on my behalf. It's me that they've rejected. He says, listen to them and give them a king. It all went downhill from there. Okay? There was uh, three kings in a row that we consider famous, Saul, David, and, uh, and Solomon. And they all messed up really, really big. But they were lesser mess-ups than most of the kings that came after them. And, and the empire split, and so you had all the kings of Israel were, were basically losers after that, everyone. And of the next 17 or 18 kings in Judah, there were like five or six that were good. And it was, it was rigged to fail because the top guy had very few checks and balances. He would appoint chief priests based on, hey, I think you should be chief priest. So you had this little buddy thing going on. And uh, it, just, it just went bad. And so what, there's a thing in us that we humans want to swoon after their king or their president or their prime minister. And it enters the church. There's about six of us in our fellowship, of which I'm one of the six, that we talk regularly about how can we get our churches going without such a dependence on a charismatic personality. And we actually have talked about going to churches and say, can we experiment with you? And we've actually, there's some churches that I have in my mind that I think that they're going to be in trouble soon. And instead of hiring a new minister to solve their problem, we will come up with a new church model that wasn't so much about who that person is. You know... If geese can get in a formation and rotate out the top guy from time to time without a major crisis or catastrophe, I would think the church would be able to do that too. It's not about people who's at the front in the book of Hebrews and relating to either what's going on in Palestine or what's going on in Italy. It's about, we got Jesus, right? Okay. Hey Amen. I'm glad we're on the same page on that. So Jesus is our, our founder, our main focus. Don't you like that Greek word, archegos? Don't you like that? Man, he's the dude. He's the Daniel Boone of the kingdom of God, you know, to blaze trails, to make it so other people can get through. That's what he did with us. So let's be fired up about him. How much do you know about him? 
Our second point of our community is our message. We are in a relay race. Turn with me to chapter 2, verse 1. Our message is really important, but what happens over time, we have to make sure the message continues on and is as good later as it was at first. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay more, the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. For since the message spoken through angels was binding in every violation and disobedience received just punishment, how should we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, I want to make a, um, a comparison and contrast here. Because in chapter 3 it comes up. In chapter 3 they're warned about not doing what the ancient Israelites do. That they, uh, they came out of Egypt and in a miraculous way crossed to sea. And in Deuteronomy chapter 4 they're told not to forget what they saw. That was the first generation. What they saw. They didn't need to hear anything. Because what they saw was so blow away. They're not to forget that. Within 60 days, they were complaining already. And within two, two years, they complained so much that the Lord said, you're hanging out in this desert until you all die, except for your youngins. <laughs> so that's, that's really the truth, because people so quickly forget what they saw. And the book of Hebrews is saying, don't forget what you heard. And so this is something. What is that message that we heard? What did you hear prior to you being baptized? What was it that drew you in, that captured you? That you said, I'm going to live for this. This is what I'm all about. From this moment on, this is my story. You know, there was a message that really did it for you. Does it still do it for you? And you know, that message, there's a core uh, number of variables that really don't change. They're like, you know, the story of Jesus, his birth. His personhood, really, all that, his person from birth through the resurrection, and then his work, what he accomplished. So theologians talk about the person and work of Christ. That is the message. And the way we might talk about it might vary a great deal, because there are certain aspects to it that maybe touch our soul more. And let me give you an example. Uh, John talks about this. John was in Palestine. He says, that which we've heard from the beginning, what we've heard we have seen with our eyes, we have looked at. And our hands have touched that we proclaim the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen and testified to it. And proclaimed to you this eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And he goes on. He's talking about, he, actually, he saw it too. He saw it and heard it. Peter, he's speaking to a Gentile audience in Acts 10. You know, the message God sent to the people of Israel, that's how he opens it up. That's the message. Announcing the gospel of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee with the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with all the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who are under the power of the devil because God was with him, were witnesses of these things and everything he did among the Jews. And Jerusalem, and they killed him by hanging him on a tree. And then he goes on to say, yeah, but God rose him from the dead. Okay, that's Peter's thing. Those, they vary a lot. It's the same story 
with a different emotional component to it. What's your message? I will tell you, I've been a Christian 33 years about, yeah, 33 years this July. I'm not bored by this. I'm not bored by it at all. I don't think I've ever really been bored by it. There are times that I drift and I get thinking about other things. But when I come back, I go, oh, wow, this is really, really good. This is good stuff. Matter of fact, I find it so fascinating that a large part of my thesis work in the 90s was on what even the second century Christians said about this. What was their message? I find it fascinating how well they recollected. They couldn't walk around with Bibles like we can today. So they spread the word through baptism and communion. That's when you tell the story over again every time there's a baptism or when you celebrate communion. And so uh, that's our message, and we are in a relay race. What is your message? What's the, the message to you? There's a lot of funky things that happens out there in the religion marketplace under the name of Christianity. And, and sometimes they do a really good job articulating the message and parts of the message. So I don't want to dismiss so many good things that happens out there. But what's in you that connects to the story? In chapter uh, uh, 2, verse 14, here's one other version of the message. It says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. And if you take the book of Hebrews and take all the snippets about Jesus from what he did in his ministry life, you have basically what Paul, Peter was talking about. And if you look at Paul's sermons in the book of Acts and Peter's sermons in the book of Acts, they're virtually the same, but with these variables that make it personal. Because I, I hope we are not cookie cutters. I hope we have like our own things about what happened at the cross or in Jesus' ministry that mean a lot to us. But at the core, it's the same message. Are you still moved by the message? Sometimes people are too moved by the medium. Too moved by a video or a book or a website or a PowerPoint. Notice that I decided to imitate Reese Neeland, who did not use a presentation last week. He asked me if I could help him learn PowerPoint, and today I decided to follow in his footsteps and just focus on the Word. Okay? But it is so fascinating, the message. It just, I, I, my goal here in this point is for you to figure out how you will say the message. Maybe what you could do, you go back and read a gospel. You look at some summary statements from Paul, 1 Corinthians 15. And there's all these, all the New Testament writers have their own little summary statements, their own captions of what moves them, reoccurring themes. How would you tell the story? Listen, there, it's out there. People need God. Right here in the West Side, people need God. This is how good I'm getting to know your community here. I can sit at a Starbucks that I've never been at before and go like this. And look out, you know, just a narrow field of view. And I could probably tell you whether I was in Malibu, Santa Monica, or Culver City, or Inglewood, or Playa del Rey. Because we have, we have char- characters. We have personality. We have certain demonstration of needs. And if you're observant, you can say, 
this area is seeking out sensations in this way. Plastic surgery or whatever, you know. <laughs> Photo brushing life, you know. You can see it. And that can actually shape how you would present the message in your neighborhood. And so think about it. What is your message? And are you ready to tell it like just like that? You know, you go to a restaurant today, you're really smart men, you take your, uh, your wives to a place to celebrate the fact that they're mothers, and, and you're talking, and somebody overhears you, and they say, oh, what do you believe? Do you have something that oozes out? Hopefully you do. I believe you do. Sometimes we need to dust it off and, and help it out a little bit, right? Okay. Three, our brand. What is a brand? The leading brand specialist, according to this person, no, I'm saying, no, the leading brand specialist on the internet that people look to, his name is Seth Godin, but he has written so many books on this, uh, Lynchpin, um, Icarus Deception, Our Tribes, I believe, but it's, he says a brand is the set of expectations, memories, stories, and relationships that taken together account for a consumer's decision to choose one product or service over another. A brand's value is merely a sum total of how much extra people will pay or in how often they will choose and the expectations, the memories, the stories, and the relationships of one brand over the alternatives. We are in competition. There is a competition between the message as it first came down from heaven and a whole lot of alternatives that have showed up in the world scene. And are we doing the brand that God gave us justice by the way we distinguish it? See, the message is just kind of put out there. The brand is the message in lived out and propagated in contrast to what the other things out there are. You understand that? And so, how would you say... This is what we, the kingdom of God, through the West Side Ministry of the Los Angeles Church, this is what distinguishes us. This is our good stuff. You should, know, you should want to know that. See, because I think it's possible that Christians, and I've done this in my own life at times, I have the best thing going, and it's wrapped in dirty laundry. Seriously. I have something really, really, really awesome. And because I haven't been taking care of it, because certain things have not been handled well, people can't see what it is that we have to offer because they see that we haven't taken care of business. And that's what Christianity has been doing this for 2,000 years. It always had the best thing going. Christianity is the source of all theology beginning with Jesus about heaven. Everybody else has talked about heaven after Jesus have plagiarized him. There's religions that didn't believe in heaven until Jesus came on the scene and they adopted his teachings into their creeds. Jesus is the real. He's the authentic. He's the archegos. And so the brand has heaven first. The brand has the Sermon on the Mount. The brand got rid of gladiator combats. The brand erased infanticide and abortions and birth hospitals in the early centuries. The brand was so, so unique, and then things happened. The church got political and corrupt 
and hierarchical and out of touch and unspiritual. And it was no longer the salt and the light. And so sometimes we just have to clean up shop so we can get back to our brand. Which is the message lived out in contrast to the alternatives. You know, about 10 or 11, 12 years ago, we went through an upheaval in our churches. And two prominent people outside of our fellowship says, don't give up this thing you are especially known for. Don't. And you know what they said we were especially known for? Two different sources, two different conversations. Because what you guys have done and your willingness to go anywhere, do anything, and give up everything for Jesus is stuff that is just so inspiring. And we're, we've moved by the example of the International Churches of Christ. You were radical. It's a really good thing. We need some of that in our churches, they would say. Well, let's not lose this, brothers and sisters. This is powerful because it's saying you got this message and this brand that you're so fired up about that you're willing to sacrifice in a great way. You're willing to relocate. You're really willing to face great challenges. You know what else we have that we have to make sure we clean up and showcase? It's right in the... The book of Hebrews as well is mentioned in two different ways, Hebrews 6 and 10. is this apostolic conversion process. Someone who believes can repent for the remission of their sins and receive the Holy Spirit at baptism. What an awesome, awesome thing. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. What a great thing. I was in a class at Pepperdine this last week, and... and the teacher was telling students basically how awesome this thing is we have in baptism. And he says, let's not shove it down people's throat. If people have, quote-unquote, prayed Jesus into their heart or had to have an infant baptism or something else that's insufficient or unscriptural, let's begin with their desire. Let's begin with the good parenting they have that put the desire of God in their heart. Let's begin with the contents of that prayer that put them thinking about God and help them finish the script. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Christ, the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart with full assurance of faith that brings having our heart sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and have our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up the habit of meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. That coming to know God and having full access and having our hearts cleansed and our conscience sorted out and our bodies washed. What a great depiction. You know, we actually have believed this all along in our fellowship. That's part of who we are. Are we good at showcasing it? Are we good at articulating it? Are we good at implementing it? Are we good at baptizing people? When was the last time you were involved in a study helping somebody? It doesn't mean leading it. Just being in it. Helping somebody from the beginning all the way through the end. I'm not asking for a raise of hands. Okay. 
maybe another time, but just right now, raise your hand in your heart, okay? When was the last time? Has it been in the last year? Has it been in the last two years? I know about me. It was, it was uh, last fall. And it was, I remember being involved in this, many, many studies with this gentleman, and uh, being at his baptism out at Lake Michigan. But what, I, what happens every time I'm part of something like that, there's a part of me that comes back to life again that was dying. I get mopey, cynical. My, my sinful nature can go in a certain, well, whatever, see the world through dark glasses, feel empty, not be motivated, then all of a sudden I'm with somebody that's hearing for the first time and they're lighting up and they're like, you mean I could have done this 20 years ago? My life would turn out so different. I can't believe I never heard this before. Okay, that's what we have. And we have, some, we have discipling, which is strengthening. You know, having people in our lives, being involved in other people's lives, helping them be more like Jesus and teaching them. You know, when I have that in my life, I become something pretty, a good version of me, okay? I'll just leave it at that. The best version, the better version, headed towards the best version. There's always a ceiling, but I'm going in the right direction when I have people in my life. When I don't have people in my life, I'm a downgrade. I'm not so good a version. Our brand has been at the best times distinguished by the calling, the conversion process, and discipling. Let's not lose that. Let's add some things to it, but let's not lose what God has given us. Amen? I mean, is it okay to say amen, question mark, and then you say amen with an exclamation point? Okay, good. Fantastic. Good. We're almost done here. Identity. What I would like us to do is I'm not going to actually go through my sermon notes on identity. I'll tell you why. By the end of this week, hopefully by next Sunday morning, you will have my finished prologue about the, the story of the founding of Los Angeles all the way up into the reason Trish and I came this last fall. And it tells an incredible story about a church that began here in 1989. A church that's fascinating with great features, did amazing things, had great accomplishments, but got stuck along the way, and more specifically, our ministry. But there's enough in there that I want you to think about our identity. Let's look at the marketplace of Los Angeles and say, who are we to be in this setting in West L.A., in Santa Monica, in Englewood, in Malibu, in Culver City, in Playa del Rey, and everywhere else in the area, let's figure that out and make sure that we protected God's brand, that we demonstrate the message in our lives. You've got to live it to give it. And we keep it on its relay race. And we talk more about Jesus than we do about the next leader of this ministry by far. How's about that? Okay? And then we will have a discussion on our identity at another time very soon. Thank you very much.